You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less-traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around trust and faith. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode. But here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Soma was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo for a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. For me, the primary meaning of faith is trust. That's found in the Gospels. The word uh, used for faith is, the Greek word is pistoin, and it means to have trust. It doesn't mean to believe in a series of doctrines and dogmas. It's about trust. So when Jesus uses that phrase often, go your way, your trust has healed you. It's been translated as your faith, but it really means trust. And Jesus himself was not out there offering up lists of believable dogmas. He was about healing people and getting people to heal themselves and one another. And to me, that is the bottom line meaning of faith, to trust. To trust the universe, to trust your right to be here, to trust your own personhood, your uniqueness. And to me, the bottom line, can we trust the universe, you know? It, to me, it's so important in that there's been 13.8 billion years that brought us here and that fine-tuned the air and everything else and made this wonderful place for us. That's why I think a lot of people recover their trust, even if they've been deeply wounded in childhood and so forth, in nature. Even though nature is wild, but you want wild. That's where beauty is to be found in the wild. Nevertheless, you can trust it. The sun will come up and the rain will stop, and the soil will provide. 
and uh, the animals will bless us and so forth. To me, all this is part of trust. It's part of uh, living in the various worlds we live in, beginning with probably with our families, but then we grow our worlds. So for me, like even some prayer practice like sweat lodges, the very first time I was in a sweat lodge, I was sure I was going to die there. First 20 minutes, I was looking for a fire escape. There was none. Then I was looking for a fire extinguisher. There was none. Then I said, I'm going to die in here. Then I yielded to the experience. So in that, I learned something about trust. And then you go into this altered state. And it was marvelous. And, and I came out feeling physically healed and wonderfully alive. Again, rituals can, if they're done well, they can teach us trust. My understanding of the way Westerners think of the word faith is when you say have faith, it's usually not telling you, oh, well, you know this, so it's just, you know, the way it is. They mean you don't have proof of it, you haven't experienced it yourself, so have faith instead. And that doesn't really work well for me, never did. So what I really have faith in is uh, things I've experienced personally. And fortunately, in Tibetan Buddhist understandings, that's the one that's stable, that is worth something. At the beginning, there's an aspirational faith, is how it's translated. So you hear about something and you think, well, that makes sense, and I'm really inspired by that. I, I want to look into this more, and meanwhile, you know, I, I kind of have that as my provisional faith. So I need that faith born of experience that in common parlance is called knowing. <laughs> That's what we call that. When you've experienced something, this is actually how it is, you know it. So one lama was in prison and the Chinese were trying to get him to change, throw away Buddhism, but he had experienced things and he knew them and he couldn't unknow them. He said, finally, you can make me say words like, you know, this isn't true, but that would be like saying, my mother doesn't exist, when I know for sure from personal experience, she exists. That did not endear him to the Chinese guards, but that's another story. I, I think the word faith has so many connotations, I almost want to step around that a little bit and get to something we can all kind of understand on the same level. When I've gone a certain number of steps down a path and it's just feeling more and more right, and I'm learning more and more, yes, this is how it is, and I'm experiencing it so then I know it, and it feels each of these steps right to me, then I begin to trust this path more and more. So that doesn't mean I'm still not going to need to evaluate. Uh, then I chew on it some more, and then I take it into practice. And as I sit doing practices that help my mind to sort of settle and the waters to, you know, calm, become calm and the silt to settle, and I can see to the bottom of the pond, if you will, then I can see for myself. And that's quite different from any words. But it's also then a very different faith that's actually knowing from your own experience. One outcome that we think of with prayer is blessings. And that word for me was like, huh? What, what do you exactly mean by blessings? And what I finally realized for me is blessings are I want to be infected by that vast mind. 
So I'm praying for that when I'm praying for blessings. I'm praying to be infected by these masters who have come before, my own master who I still know, so that that helps me to tune in. So then I can be infected by that mindset. It's not that I'm imagining an actual person I'm praying to. Even though I pray to the Lama a lot, I'm praying to that essence of the Lama that is no different from my essence or anybody else's. You know, that's how I can use a channel changer, you know, and tune into that ineffable awareness of the ocean. So it's really a bridge to tune into that. Okay, these deities, you know, that's all very great and they're very powerful and everything, but are they really real? <laughs> and my answer, the only one I could think of was to say, they're as real as you are. <laughs> the role of science, too, is something that, for me, has always been important. I mean, how can you study nature if you're not listening to scientists who spend all their time studying nature? Again, it's my tradition because Aquinas put his whole career on the line by bringing Aristotle in through Islam into Christianity in the 13th century, and in the process, totally threatened the fundamentalists of his day. Badly. So he wasn't participating in the schism, and that freaked them out, I imagine. But there, exactly. there never was a schism for Buddhists, as far as I can tell, against science. They just mm -hmm. didn't go through that particular right. experience. His Holiness the Dalai Lama loves interacting with the scientists, mm -hmm. because the Buddha insisted that we really make a very clear-eyed, open-eyed inquiry and encourage debate and so on and so forth. And through thought experiment, you know, they didn't have laboratories so much, but it's amazing mm -hmm. what they did know. Because mm -hmm. in my early teachings from Rinpoche, he was discussing atoms, which they had a word for, and then subatomic theory. Mm -hmm. And it was sounding like what our scientists had been discovering in the last few decades. Mm -hmm. And I got all excited and I said, guess what? Our scientists are saying the same thing mm -hmm. you're saying. He looked very unimpressed. He said, well, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. Why should I be impressed? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. But yeah, so that the... Didn't know about the divorce in the West. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. One of the scientists just had to ask His Holiness, well, if we disprove one of the tenets of your faith through science, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, when they were going to begin this dialogue uh -huh. that uh, has only grown and flourished over the years, and lots of books have come of it, and scientific experiments and so on, mm -hmm. you know. And contemplative science is now in some universities. Mm -hmm. But this was way back at the beginning, and His Holiness said, well, you know, if you methodically use the scientific method and, you know, you know clearly, definitively disprove that, I have to accept that. And using the breath and calling on it and adapting it, being able to steer it and mm -hmm. so forth. Well, the um, mind rides on the breath. So it's... Well, there you have it. And the word breath is the identical word for spirit, mm -hmm. both in the biblical languages and in most languages around the world. Mm -hmm. The alliance between breath and spirit, and of course both are invisible, but they obviously both matter because without breath, you're not going very far <laughs> for very long, right? right? So, you know, invisible things matter. Yeah. You know, no matter what Descartes says or modern science as opposed to postmodern science. Yeah. Not everything is quantifiable. I sort of think we don't have all of the equipment to perceive some of these things that we claim aren't there. That's, that's right. But we're developing them, as you know, at the University of Wisconsin and some other places now. We're kind of 
creeping into this territory of being able to test, you know, how the brainwaves are working and all this and see there's a lot more going on than anyone thought. Well, than any scientist thought. (laughs) But a lot of contemplative traditions have always known about. In Buddhism, the way they worked with it was to use the mind as an instrument to study the mind, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, of course, paradoxical, a little Mm -hmm. bit tricky. That's why we must train the mind in stability Mm -hmm. and and really kind of clean it up because otherwise Mm -hmm. it's not going to be a very fit instrument for this study. Mm -hmm. But when they did that, it was amazing the Mm -hmm. knowledge that they were able to gain. Mm -hmm. That's one of the traditional arguments for the soul is that the human soul can reflect on itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is very special, to be a mirror Mm -hmm. upon yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, your tradition obviously has developed so many sophisticated ways of exploring the mind, or the soul in this case. And I think that the West has done more than it's really aware of, including, of course, art and science itself. I mean, science itself was also a way of examining Mm -hmm. our nature and even our inner nature if we start asking the right questions. When I did my master's studies uh, um, in theology, I chose to work on Jesus and prayer and in a biblical context. And what I learned from that was how Jewish Jesus was in his prayer, but also how when you're dealing with the subject of prayer, they're really dealing with the essence of what we call spirituality. And so my first book, I'm trying to deal with prayer in its essence, get down to what it really is. In my own discovery, Meister Eckhart has played a huge role. I was reading a book by Kumar Swami, a Hindu, on art and spirituality, and there's a chapter in there on Eckhart. And there were quotes in Eckhart that I had published in a book I'd written the year before. And this just absolutely freaked me out. I didn't finish the book, Kumar Swami's book, I was so freaked out, I put it back on the shelf. Said, this is scary. And a few months later, I went back and I picked it up and, and I finished the essay on Eckhart and there were more, more quotes in Eckhart that I'd published that year in an article I did on Sacred Space and Sacred Time. I started to look more deeply into Eckhart and then I was in a serious car accident. To make a long story short, I had an operation and Eckhart came to me during the operation. And we went walking together on the beach. Nothing said, complete silence. And it was the most transcendent dream of my life. And he really entered my, my world in a, in a fuller way there. And then I really went after him. And I found there, as I say, a real brother. And he talks about the ocean simile time and again when he's talking about compassion. And another yoga, another spiritual practice in the West is study. And again, this is very Jewish, but if you... If you study Torah, bring your heart to it, that is prayer. And that is absolutely explicit in the Benedictine tradition and in the Dominican tradition, for sure. That to study, if you intend it to be prayer, it will be prayer. This has tremendous implications for science. And I think it's one reason that the science has broken out in the West as strongly as it has. However, it became secularized. It became cut off from spiritual practice, and it became co-opted by governments and whatnot with their agendas and corporations. But for the scientist then has to return to the real heart place of authentic search for wisdom and truth as being a heart search. So uh, these Rhineland mystics in the Middle Ages, I think, gave birth 
to what I would call a rather authentic Christianity, this same tradition of contemplative, active justice mysticism. And this tradition is also not anti-intellectual. It's, it's very pro-scientific because science tells us what's in nature. Aquinas said a mistake about nature results in a mistake about God. And that means what we discover about nature is a discovery about God. Einstein knew that, and he knew it from his Jewish tradition, that you can trust the mind to find the universe's secrets and therefore God's secrets. And of course, Buddhism is, is, is deliciously rich in honoring the mind and using the mind to explore what really counts. And Einstein says, there are two ways to look at life. Either nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. And I think the modern age, when we shut the cosmos down and called it a machine, then what religion did was define miracle as an intervention in the machine, an intervention of natural laws. Once the cosmos is open up for what it really is, then you realize every breath is a miracle. The fact that this earth happened, that the, the moon is just the right distance from the earth for tides to rise and therefore for life to happen, all these facts of science then to me become daily fodder for miracles. And we're not here just asking to be zapped and freed. If you look at it from another point of view, that this is a dream during waking hours, just as we have dreams at night when we're sleeping, and that there really isn't that much difference after all. When you look at it from that point of view, has anybody here experienced realizing they were dreaming during the dream? Okay, and in that moment then, weren't you able to do anything you wanted? Fly through the air, uh, pass through walls, all these kind of, you can transform anything into anything, you can just play. And the universe is the play of God, or, and it's known in Buddhism as the play of the Dharmakaya, the ground of all. So we get to play once we realize how it really works. So everything is a miracle and nothing is a miracle, just mm -hmm. as you're saying. And of course that word play is so important to Eckhart and Aquinas too. Aquinas says the nearest word to contemplation is play. That's the synonym for contemplation that you're playing with wisdom, you're playing with God. Eckhart says, it, when you learn to live without a why, W-H-Y, and to love without a why, and to work without a why, and of course, what is that? That's play. Play has no why. It has no purpose beyond itself. That's why recovering play is such a profound and mature spiritual trip, as you're saying. If you have enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshock, please visit namshock.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy with Audio Wool Productions. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Harmonia Mundi USA. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.